Good to see you all. We're continuing our fantastic series on women in the Bible. This evening we're going to look at Lydia. So when I leave work, I get in the car. It's like peace at last. And I switch on BBC Radio 4 for some calm, sensible radio. Um, back in July, this, the, the, the news came on. And the presenter was delighted to tell me that a 560 million year old fossil of a jellyfish had been found somewhere, which was interesting. And they went on to sort of give all the thanks and glory to evolution. And I went, oh. Have you ever tried to have a conversation with a colleague or family member about creation and evolution? Or even just to say that you go to St. Mike's on a Sunday and they smile and look at you with that pity that says, oh, they were such a nice person, but fruitcake, basically, is what they're saying. Oh dear, don't, don't, don't they know that that stuff has all been proven to be, you know, evolution is fact. And they, you know, well, anyway, I was disappointed with the BBC. But where we're going with this is, how secure are you in your faith? Could you defend that faith to someone who didn't believe it? It's not easy. If BBC called you up and said, could you be the person to give the creation viewpoint on this and give God some glory, how, how, how would you feel about that? So we're going to take a look at this with Lydia's help this evening. So let's, let's start in prayer. Father God, please be with us this evening as we continue our worship in the Word. Um, and Lord, I really ask you to help us to become even more secure in our faith like Lydia this evening. Uh, we're turning to Acts. Uh, Acts 16, verse 11. And Luke is writing about Paul's missionary journey, three or four year missionary journey, goes through Turkey to Greece. Um, and he says in verse 11, from Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. Verse 14, one of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. And when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in verse 14, Lydia is introduced as one of those listening, which I thought was very good. 
maybe instead of listening, we could say one of those thinking, maybe searching. Someone who's listening is obviously there's a bit more going on. And in the same verse, in verse 14, goes on to describe her as a worshipper of God. Now, Luke is writing this, and, and throughout the book of Acts, he uses different terms for, for people. And some, he says, a Hebrew woman or a Jewess or, or a, um, a Jewish lady. Uh, and, and this context, he says, a worshipper of God, so not an Israelite or a Jew. He also uses the phrase, a God-fearing Gentile. Um, in her time, she was from Thyatira, which was um, in Greece, uh, sorry, in Turkey. They would have had lots of gods. To say a worshipper of God was saying, this is someone who has recognized and chosen to believe in the one true God, the God of the Jews. And there wasn't a synagogue in Philippi, so these few um, believers in God were meeting at the river to pray. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. The question is, what message? What was Paul's message? Acts 9, verse 22, tells us what Paul was good at. It says, Paul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. That was just after his conversion. That was his message. That's what he brought as he went around. And then she, in verse 15, and the members of her household were baptized. Well done, Lydia. Except, let's be honest, there's two mistakes here. She's, she's um, on the fruitcake scale. One, she believes she's a worshipper in God, right? And there's two rather large problems. If I talk to my friends about saying I, I'm a worshipper of God. Because um, there's two quite famous Bible stories that people throw back in my face and say, number one, creation, seven days, really? You believe that stuff? Second story, Noah's Ark. Two by two, are you having a laugh, really? Come on, we know this is what happens when we talk to, we talk to people. So uh, realistic, logical, clever, rational, intelligent people are put off, aren't they? by those two stories. Charles Darwin, Richard Dawkins, even our David Attenborough, who we love so much, they're not mistaken, really, are they? This, this is where our, our faith has to be secure, isn't it, when we, when we speak to people? So anyway, back to the fossil, 560 million-year-old fossil. And I'm listening on the radio, and I'm waiting. BBC is supposed to be balanced, isn't it? You get one political party, so you get the other. Well, here was the, the story of evolution creating this whole universe. And I'm waiting for the other side of the argument. And what is there? Silence. Silence. Obviously, it went into the sports news. It wasn't really silent, but there was no response. Um, and it struck me, actually, preparing this, that when the Pharisees were telling Jesus to silence his disciples when they were worshipping him on Palm Sunday. He actually says in Luke 19, he says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, even the rocks will cry out. 
So what are the rocks saying to us? Have you heard of the fossil record? Getting a little bit scientific now. Sorry, we're going steering away from maybe where you expected to go this evening. The fossil record describes the way that the remains of dead matter is preserved, turned to stone, in layers of sedimentary rock across huge swathes of the Earth's surface. And as a famous logical thinker, uh, he's actually a computer scientist, his name is David Galerntner, and he wrote this. He said, if life progressed by an accumulation of small changes, as Darwin and Dawkins and Attenborough suggest, the fossil record, the bones that we find in the ground, should reflect this. Little organisms, to slightly more complicated than that, and in a smooth progression to us, to the animals that we see today, to humans. But, he says, before the Cambrian layer of rock, very little is inscribed in the fossil record. But then something happens. An astonishing number of biological structures come into creation all at once. The rocks are telling us that. Sylvia Baker, a, a scientist with the Biblical Creation Society, she, she went on to say, the, uh, the evidence of the fossil record these fossils, these, these dinosaur bones, these, all these other bones, it doesn't support the theory of a gradual development from very tiny to very complex ones. Rather, many complex ones appear suddenly in these rocks. This is just what we would expect from the Bible's version of how things were created. Galerntner, the computer scientist, he, he says it in quite a nice way. He says it's the universe, creation, is almost unfathomable complexity. It's complexity wrapped up in complexity, wrapped up in complexity. Now that's a little bit too scientific for me. I need to get back to sort of things I can, uh, I can understand. So I'll try and give you two examples to help um, people like me in the room who need something a little bit easier. So we're talking about how creation, the universe, comes into being. So there's nothing, and then there's something, and, and then there's particles around, and a tornado happens, and it picks up all the bits and pieces and turns it into a jumbo jet. Would you believe it? A picture of maybe the complexity. Here's my second one. This is my favorite. I left this one to last. So you're walking on the beach, and you see a picture of a heart, maybe a name in it, I love Betty. The Donus Dara, actually. But. Would, you, um, would you say the waves did it? Would you say the wind did it? Would you say that over time it could happen? Um, I don't think many of us would, because we look at that and we can see there's evidence of intelligence in putting the words in the right order in the picture. Um, so I think kidneys and eyes and solar system... DNA, we look at this stuff, it's hard to imagine, isn't it? Um, but that stuff just comes together from, from the wind, from the waves, from tornadoes and nothing. But obviously, I'm a Christian, so I would think that, wouldn't I? 
Well, here's a quote from a guy who's an agnostic. So he does not believe in, in God and says so. His name is David Berlinski. He is one of the world's leading physicists. And he took issue with um, Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. Um, he says it's infidelity to the facts. He says, you're not, you're not being truthful here about the facts. You can't say that evolution is a scientific fact, is his point. And he says, has anyone ever provided proof of God's existence? Not even close. Has quantum cosmology explained the emergence of the universe or why it is here? Not even close. Have the sciences explained why our universe seems so fine-tuned to allow for the existence of life? Not even close. So if you were to join me in, in the fruitcake sort of scale and believe that maybe God did it, it's plausible that he intelligently created um, everything. Then you might also be likely to believe another fruitcake story, that Jesus rose from the dead. I don't think my friends like that one either. But we're here, so I'm guessing maybe some of you believe that. Could you argue it's truth? Would you lay down your life for the truth of it? Because that's what it's about, isn't it? And based on what evidence? I'm going to try and look at one little way that I think there is evidence, great evidence for Jesus' resurrection. So first off, we have to believe that Jesus existed. And Jews and Muslims and Christians and Roman historians all agree Jesus lived um, in Israel and Palestine and that he died on a Roman cross. And all Jews and Muslims and Christians also believe in his prophetic life and miracles. Historically, there's no real leg to stand on to say this person did not exist. Apparently, there's more evidence for Jesus than Tiberius Caesar, so we can't doubt his existence. But did he rise from the dead is another question, isn't it? Um, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, uh, so from verse 5, he writes that Jesus was raised on the third day and that he appeared to Peter and then to the apostles. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters all at the same time. But they were all his followers and his disciples. They were going to say, weren't they? They were going to say they saw him. But what about his enemies? What about the people who did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God while Jesus was alive? Would they, after his death, at the time of the great persecution, would they then go, oh yeah, I believe in him now? That persecution is described in Acts where the church, the believers, were all scattered. And people like Saul went from house to house, taking women, taking men, and putting them in prison. That would not be an appealing prospect for someone who did not really, really, really believe in the resurrection. So we're going to look at two people who did not believe. The first is James, half-brother of Jesus. So 
Joseph and Mary went on to have several sons and several daughters. And in John 7, we're told even his own brothers did not believe him. And in Mark, there's that crazy story where Jesus says, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And he says, who are my mother and brothers? And he turns to the people in the room with him and says, here are my mother and brothers, people who um, are doing God's will. So that's in Mark 3, 31. But Ten verses before that, it sort of gives the intro to that. And it says that Jesus' family, that his brothers, are saying he's out of his mind. We're going to take charge of him. So off they go to this house. And Jesus is told, your mother and brothers are outside. And that was his response. In Mark 6, we're told that Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth. And the people say, isn't this Mary's son and brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon and sisters who are here with us? And they took offense at Jesus because of what he was saying. And Jesus' response was, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own house. James and the other brothers did not believe at that point that Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Messiah, the Son of God. And even at Jesus' death, just before the cross, he entrusts the care of Mary, his mother, to John, his friend and disciple, rather than his uh, half-brothers. So what changed? Back in 1 Corinthians again, verse 7. So after that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time. The next verse says, then he appeared to James. Not told anything else, just appeared to James. Now, an appearance is not like I arrive and call for tea and you've met me and you think, Jesus did a few things, didn't he? He arrived when the door was locked or he disappeared and went somewhere else. I mean, an appearance was, was amazing, especially when you've seen someone who's very dead on the cross. I don't want to make a silly point, but he was killed until he was dead on the cross. And then to be seen alive again by someone who did not believe you is a big deal, I think. Anyway, after that, he appeared to the other apostles. So the next time we hear of James, don't believe, don't believe, don't believe, appeared to James, the next time we hear about James is... I've lost it. Acts 15, he's the leader of, church, of the church in Jerusalem, and he's making a judgment. He's listening to Paul, and he's listening to Peter, and he's passing judgment on a church matter. And then, even better than that, James 1, verse 1, where he writes his book, and he introduces himself. What did he say? James, the brother of Jesus? What did he say? He goes, James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did he believe in the resurrection? Did he put himself in harm's way because of it? That, that to me, is a big one. Uh, 
On that note, Jesus' other brother Jude does the same thing when he introduces himself in his book, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. He doesn't claim to be a brother of Jesus. He claims Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So that was James. That was my first one. Second person who is, sorry, was an enemy um, was Saul, an enemy of Jesus. He was Saul the persecutor in Acts 8. But staying in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, Paul says, last of all, after appearing to the apostles, the 500 and James, Paul says he appeared to me, for I am the least of the apostles, because I persecuted the church of God. His, his journey was, I'm sure, full of remorse. Look what I've done. When Jesus appeared to him, he was transformed, wasn't he? Absolutely transformed. So they met Jesus. Something happened that changed everything. And they spent the rest of their lives at a very dangerous time proving that Jesus is the Messiah. So let's come back to Lydia to finish. She believed, was baptized, and then she invited Paul and friends to stay. What did they say in response? And I think this is funny because they're on a missionary trip that took three or four years. They didn't stay in the Holiday Inn or the Hilton. They tended to stay with someone who received the message. I'm sure when they arrived, they were looking for someone with a nice house and a view. And she says, come and stay with me. In verse 15... It says, if you consider me, this is Lydia speaking, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And then after that, it says, and she persuaded us. I'm thinking, why would you persuade someone? Because they would have said, what? Um, maybe not. Oh, but you're, you're a woman, maybe? You're a Gentile? You're not a Jew. We can't. Mm. She had to persuade them. And this I thought was amazing. So imagine this, you know, but you, can't, you can stay with me. Why can't you stay with me? Uh, but, 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 listen, I believe in God Almighty, creator of all this, same as you. And I believe, because you told me that Jesus appeared to you after he died, I believe this. Isn't that true? And she convinced them, it says, you consider me a believer in God, in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Mad, isn't it? The evangelist was being convinced of the story. So what do the rocks say? The rocks say, look at the facts, don't they? What do the facts say? The facts are saying, look at the Bible, really, I think. And what does the Bible say? The Bible says, look at God. What did Paul say? Well, he proved 
that Jesus was Messiah, Son of God. What did Lydia say? Well, she persuaded Paul that she believed that Jesus was his Messiah, Son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that we would become more secure in our faith and not so fearful to share it or so silent when there is strong arguments against your word. And Lord, I pray that we would be able to cry out so that the rocks don't have to. stand together. Got a little bit of a new song for you this evening. It's called Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me.